open the curtains as much yeah. as you possibly can because yeah. it's going to ease in. It's the right thing to do, and it's going to ease in your ability to get stuff done. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Hey, everybody. I know this is something that you have been waiting for. We have over 3,000 or so uh, people who signed up to, to be part of this. So I'm really excited to have Daniel Pink with me. So Dan, how you doing? I'm good, Sangram. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So do you go by Dan or Daniel? Because I never asked you that. And I just said Dan. Dan is good. Dan is good. All right. Well, I know last time when we did this, um, you were working out of your shed, which I think is the same exact <laughs> shed that we're having yes. in the backyard. Is that yes. And thank you for thank you for calling it a shed, because I think that's what it is. It's actually I live in Washington, DC, and this neighborhood has uh, a, a lot of the original one-car garages that were built in the 1920s. So we took our one-car garage and converted it into Pink Ink World Headquarters about eight or nine years ago. So this is it. This is where it all happens. This wow. is in Hamilton. In Hamilton terms, this is the room where it happened. Well, is this, has anything changed for you since we actually, like, last four or five? Because I know you work a lot from, from your home and from, yeah. uh, from your shed. So has anything changed for you in the last few, year, few months, weeks? Oh, uh, well, no, the, no, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I've been working at home for, for 20 years. So it, this is not, that is not a massive adjustment. But like many people, uh, not being able to go places is a huge adjustment. Um, yeah. So, you know, I have not, uh, I have not gone more than maybe, uh, I mean, I can probably, I can chart it by my running route, but yeah. I have not gone, because I have a run, well, I have one running route, which is two miles out and two miles back. So the furthest I've gone from my house has been, in the last five or six weeks has been, uh, has been two, two miles. Uh, I haven't, I don't even remember the last time I was in my car. You know, uh, what's interesting, I went in and started my car because I was worried my car won't start after a few weeks of like not starting at all. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. And I've got a, I've got a high school, my wife and I have a high school junior who's suddenly not going to school. He's doing quote unquote distance learning from here. Our, we have a college junior who was, unceremoniously booted out of her off of her campus what is it now probably six weeks ago and so she'll be spending her entire spring trimester here in our house in washington dc rather than on her campus which is in california so uh, quite a step downward for her so yeah it's a weird um so it's a weird it's a weird moment but we're healthy and um you know that's the most important that's the most important thing trying to take care of each other and there are a lot of people out there who are when i read about these Doctors and nurses, especially the ones in New York, I'm just yeah. blown away by what they're doing. It's just incredible. It is crazy. So, folks, as everybody's joining in, uh, welcome to uh, to LinkedIn Live, and I think this is also on Facebook and YouTube as well. So, if you don't know, Daniel Pink is a New York Times bestseller. I have, uh, I think, I have four of your books, but the When, the Drive, and probably my personal favorite is still this, which is to sell as human. Uh, because I think everybody is in the business of selling, you like it or not, and it's something your point you make in this. Um, and and many and if you haven't seen the Pinkcast, 
which is on danielping.com. You got to go check it out because they're like literally what a minute or two minutes or short, but they're very quick additions of all these different ideas that and interviews and conversations that you have. And as part of what you do, work with many different companies. Uh, but for the folks who don't know you, uh, Daniel, could you share a little bit more about what you do, your line of work, and, and we'll jump into the idea of future of work and productivity to that. Yeah, for the last 20 years, I've been a writer. And, and what I mostly write about is somewhere at the intersection of work, business, and uh, science. Uh, and so uh, among the things that I try to do, I guess, is, is look at uh, big bodies of particularly social science, but other kinds of science as well, and say, what can we glean from that uh, to make better decisions in our work and our education and our home? Yeah. And, and you, every single one of your books, I feel like it's like, it seems like there's a lot of research that has gone through it. Almost sometimes it feels like years of research, but you've written like about six or seven, or I don't know if long more books than that. Like, how long does it take for you to do the research? Are you it's, writing multiple books at the same time? No, I don't write. I, I can't do multiple things at the same time in any area of my life. Uh, but no, it takes a lot of time to do. It takes a lot of time to do research. I'm working on another project right now, another book right now. And I have uh, in my Dropbox file, because I'm just getting ready to, to sort them, I, uh, I think it's like 211 papers that I, academic papers that I need to read in order to begin working on this book. So, so yeah, so I like the research. I mean, I like doing the research, but I think it also gives credibility. You know, one of the things, the way I look at it sometimes, I mean, I look at it in, in the way that I do as a, as, a, as a reader. I mean, I like books that are about big ideas, but every once in a while with a big, often with a big idea book, the person will say, the writer will say, here's a big idea. And then you're like, whoa, that's a huge idea. What should I do? And they don't stoop to tell you what to do about it. Yeah. Then you have another genre of books where people are saying, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And the whole time I read, well, how do you know? Like, what's your evidence? And so what I'm trying to do is merge the, merge the two. So have yeah. recommendations, uh, ways to help people navigate their lives but built not on my intuitions or my guesses, but built on what science knows. Yeah, and I love that because it, it just feels like you just gave me a crash course on like when I read one of your books, how do you create drive? When you actually spend time to work, like especially if, if people haven't picked this up, when is really, really interesting book and we're gonna dive into it in a second, but this is about the scientific secrets of perfect timing and everybody's trying to be productive in whatever circumstances they got. And I'm wondering, let's just start right there. When you wrote this book, clearly we were not in this crazy scenario that we are in right now. Would anything have changed in terms of the productivity, the timing when people, because when is all about, when is your best time to work? When is your best time to exercise? When is your best time to be the best you in, in many ways? So could you share more about this book, When, and how does that relate to today's day and age? Sure. So, so uh, I'll give you the I'll give you the big picture, and then we'll focus in on whether anything has changed in this particular bizarre moment. So, the big picture is that uh, this is a book about <laughs> this. Is, when is a book that I wanted to read and didn't exist? So, unfortunately, I had to go through the painful process of writing it. And and what I wanted was some guidance on when to do things. Uh, there are a lot of books that tell us how to do stuff. Uh, there are a lot of books that tell us why to do things, you know, how to tap your inner motivation or whatnot. But I was making all kinds of decisions in my own life about when to do things, everything from when in the day should I do my writing to when should I launch a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And, um, and I, I needed some guidance on that. And it turned out there was a, 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 
an enormous amount of science out there on this question of timing. It had a peculiar quality, though, Sangram, in that it was splattered all over the place. So it wasn't in a single domain. It wasn't, say, only in economics or only in social psychology. It was there, but yeah. it was also in microbiology. It was in uh, there's a whole field called chronobiology. It was in anthropology and mm. linguistics and epidemiology and anesthesiology. And so what I did is I tried to go through this rather massive amount of science to talk about um, how, essentially how to make time our ally rather than our enemy. So everything mm. from when during the day should you do things to things like how do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? How do groups synchronize in time? How does the very way we talk about time or think about time affect how, how well we do? Um, and so, uh, and, and as for the, the, the other part about whether this particular corona moment has an, has an effect on this, I, I'm, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, I guess, my answer is, I guess my answer is yes and no. At, at, the, at the nitty gritty level, at the nitty gritty level, um, uh, what it's, what it, especially at the day-to-day -day level, uh, I think there are some really important lessons in there for, because suddenly you have tens of millions of people who are forced essentially to organize their work on themselves, by themselves. Right. They're, 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 they're at home. They have much greater control over the schedule than they've had in the past. So what do you do about that? And there's some very, very clear lessons about what to do about that. I think it becomes more complicated. And it's in, in why your question is so interesting. It just the number of people I've talked about saying, what day of the week is it today? <laughs> You know, uh, you know, and, 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 and these usual and these and there's a there's a principle in chronobiology called called entrainment. That is in, in a day to day process uh, in terms of our wakeful when we go to sleep and when we wake up. Some of that is our our innate uh, chronobiology, our, our, our innate chronotype. All right. So some of it's a biological expression, except that our biology uh, responds to social cues. Uh, everything from when offices open to sunlight to other kinds of things like external external cues. And so there's a weird kind of entrainment problem going on here in that for a lot of people, the weekend and the weekdays are a little bit different. The days are blending together. I think there's something very disorienting about um, recognizing a beginning to this moment when we're uh, you know isolating and quarantining, but not knowing what the end is going to be. And therefore, not knowing what the midpoint is going to be. So there, I think there's a lot of time confusion at this moment as well. Yeah, I, I'm with you. So, so I think a lot of people who have been uh, with me through on this LinkedIn Live journey know that I got two kids. Uh, my son, Chris, he's nine. Uh, my daughter, Kiara, she's five. Uh, we both, me and my wife, work. And so, like, right now, I have to go to them and tell them, all right, folks, for the next hour, just so you know, I'm like live. If you come in, that's fine. But just know, if you don't, that we really appreciate it. So if they show up, they show up, right? We, we're all cool with that now. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I think there's something good about I think there's something good about that as well. In that one of the things that I think we've seen, but it has nothing to do with time. But it's a it's it's an interesting point that you're making is that I do think there is something uh, humbling about yeah. about this, and you see it to me at least. You see it on 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 like the late night shows where suddenly Trevor Noah and Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon are at least they're 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 not quite as funny in, in part because they're a little bit more normal. You know what I mean? They're like they're sitting there on their stairs with bad lighting. Yeah. And and so there's something I think kind of um, uh, sort of uh, I think that that in, in many ways, both at the micro level of people's lives, but also I think at the societal level, there's been a great kind of this has been a great unmasking yeah. of 
totally. uh, in, in our in our lives. Yeah, I, I feel I really truly feel that I know more about my teammates and the people I work with about their lives more now than I ever did before. You know, like I'm seeing in their living rooms and seeing their cats and dogs that I didn't know about and the, how important of a role they play in their lives, thereby what makes them happy. I know what kind of gifts now I need to be sending them. I almost feel like I didn't know these people that I worked with for, for a number of years. Actually. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is truly humbling and almost uh, making you recognize that, oh my God, how lost I have been in the idea of work and yeah. thinking that you know, boardroom and meeting rooms is where everything happens. And it's just not true. Yeah, it's a great point. My, and my use, my, my word humbling might not be the right word there. At some level, it's just uh, humanizing. Yes, humanizing. I love that. Even a few weeks ago, we had Patrick Lencioni um, uh, doing LinkedIn Lab, and he used the word exceedingly human is, is part of what we need to be doing right now. And that has stuck in my head as well. One of the things that I wanted to talk in, there's a lot of folks, and, and hey, thank you so much for showing up. If you have questions, please uh, put it out there. We'll be asking these questions live as they go, but I got a whole bunch of questions. If you don't ask, that's okay. I got a, I got a lot of questions for, for Daniel. One of the things that you, you mentioned in one of your pincast, uh, the two-minute videos, was around uh, messaging that sticks, right? Like creating messaging that sticks. And you had a bunch of different examples. You talk about this idea of process fluency that company, oh, uh-huh. right? And, and I, I'm recognizing the times now, right now and think, oh my God, if you're not clear, crystal clear about why you exist, you're going to be gone. Like it's literally going to be out of, out, of, out of business like tomorrow. So you're messaging for people to be remembered, uh, be, uh, to be portable so that they can talk to other people about it is so much more important. And you're, that video around messaging that sticks really made me think about like, why is it important? A lot of people are in marketing and sales here. So can you share a little bit more about that concept? Sure, sure. This is a concept that's actually from the field of linguistics called processing fluency, as, as you said, Sangram, uh, processing fluency. And processing fluency simply means a message is able to go down easy. Now, we, we, that, is, that itself is, is virtuous. That is, a message that goes down easy becomes more understandable. But one of the things that, that linguists have discovered is that uh, messages that are high in processing fluency not only go down easier, they're actually more believable. Now, this, is a, this has, a, has a happy side and a dark side. So let me give you two examples. So there are a variety of things that can increase processing fluency. One of them is, uh, I'll give you sort of the happy side and then the dark side. The, the, one of them ha- actually happens to be rhymes. Mm-hmm. Rhymes. Uh, there's a really interesting study out of Lafayette College from a few years ago, uh, which has a great title. The, the name of the paper, the title of the paper is Birds of a Feather Flock Conjointly. And what they did, and what they did is they is they gave people in this, they gave their participants a set of proverbs. And they asked their they asked the participants, are these proverbs meaningful? Are they insightful? Do they reflect the human experience? So it's basically assess like how how um how insightful are they? But the, what the participants didn't know is that they'd been divided in half. Half the people got proverbs that rhymed. Half the people got proverbs that said the same thing, essentially, but that didn't rhyme. So one of the, one of the first examples was, so one group got woes unite foes. All right. The other one, it said woes unite enemies. All right. Uh, one, one of them said, Caution and measure will bring you treasure. The other one said, 
caution and measure will bring you riches. Okay. And so what they did is they said, do these groups have any difference in how insightful they think these messages are? Hmm. And it turned out that the group that got the rhyming proverbs found them more persuasive, more meaningful, more insightful than the group that had the, the same thing, just in a way that didn't rhyme. And they even did a, a check on this, where they went back to the rhyming group and said, did the fact that it rhymed make any difference? And they hmm. said, no, of course not. And so, and so what we know from this is that rhyming is one of the things that increases processing fluency. And that makes intuitive sense. So if you look at, um, I just saw a story in the Atlantic about uh, really interesting by a graphic designer looking at the, some of the posters that have been in pandemics, public health posters that have been in pandemics in the past. Hmm. Um, and there was a really good one. I, and forgive me, I can't remember what it is, but maybe we can put a link to it somewhere uh, of a poster. Uh, using a rhyme about uh, oh crap, I can't remember what it was, but it's but like posters that had a rhyme, it, something that rhymed with sneeze. Uh, but you see it, you see it in um, in how kids learn to language and how kids learn to uh, speak and read. Nursery rhymes, Dr. Seuss, um, yes. and so rhyme, so rhymes increase processing fluency, and so there's something to be said for uh, messages that rhyme. I mean, it seems kind of cheesy, but yes. it actually is an effective tool. Because again, it goes down easier. Now, let me show you the dark side of that. Mm -hmm. One of the other things, or the potential dark side of that, it's not inherently dark, is repetition. Mm -hmm. Repetition increases processing fluency. Okay, mm -hmm. repetition increases processing fluency. Repetition increases processing fluency. So if you if you say something a lot, people tend to believe it. And so this is one of the big problems we have right now with the the incredible spread of conspiracy theories, yeah. mistruths, and whatever. It also raises some interesting questions with journalism when you have politicians who are mm -hmm. saying things that are fundamentally not true. Do you, it's an ethical journalistic ethic issue, do you as a reporter repeat the things like so-and-so said X, it wasn't true, do you, even re do you even repeat that? Because what a lot of the research shows is that if somebody says a lie, like if I, if I write a story about a politician who says, something that is demonstrably not true, I repeat the claim and then say, but it's not true, yeah. it doesn't really matter much. Actually, just getting it out there and hearing the repetition actually reinforces it. So that's the dark side of, so that's the dark side of processing fluency. So, uh, so because again, I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, um, we're, we're, I guess we're sort of agnostic, as receivers, to some extent, our brains are agnostic about not entirely, but are agnostic about some of the content of messages. Yeah. I, I don't want to say that that's not totally true, but no, I, and but, I see but, but, but the idea that the, the idea that something repeated over and over again, if it's not true, will become believable because oh. of the processing fluency effect is pretty clear. No, I mean, when I think about this, I, I think about uh, Nike is just do it. And the one, the clarity of it and the fact that they honor athletes and they don't talk about pro features and things. And the fact that ultimately that's their main message. This is for the athletes, people who have athletes inside of them or Adidas or any, any of these, these sports. I think there's a lot to it. I wonder, because when I think about marketing, because I'm a marketer, a lot of people listening is, are marketers. I wonder, I think this is not taught in marketing, right? Like this is not a one-on-one -on -one level of like, all right, you need to create messaging. It's like the positioning. You talk about that. You talk about the, the four product, Ps. All the four Ps. But you don't really talk about like, all right, how do you how do you persuade people to actually make make 
make something that's memorable and portable, which is ultimately what's going to get people to buy because they're going to start believing to your point to that. I wonder how much of that is just not there and, and people are struggling with that, but it should be. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that sophisticated marketers understand that. If you think, I mean, Nike, let's take Nike as that example. I think it's a really interesting example. Number one is that do not discount how many uh, tens of probably hundreds of millions of dollars has been put in repeating that and repeating that and repeating that and repeating that. Uh, but also, just think about the simplicity of that. It's literally three syllables. Yes. Yes. It's literally three syllables. So that simplicity can add to the processing fluency. So. So rhyming, that kind of ultra simplicity, alliteration, uh, sometimes uh, actually lists can increase processing fluency, repetition increases processing fluency. And so I, I do think that there is a, uh, especially now, there is a premium on this kind of ultra clarity, repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. Yep. And thanks for repeating that because that just went in there right now. I get it. All right. Your other book, To Sell is Human. I see a lot of people have actually read that book and some saying like they, that's the book that they have as well. What I'm hearing from people right now more than ever before is that, hey, look, right now, this is not the time to go super aggressive. Like just hold on to your horses, be super empathetic, be always be helping. Even we at Terminus talk about like helping is the new selling and let's just do that. At the same time, I'm hearing and just being very sensitive to the sellers who are like, hey, look, I got my quota. I got kids to, to you know, get food, food on the table. I got to sell stuff to actually have a job. Otherwise, I'm going to be out of job. And the idea of to sell is human, I feel almost is at the center of it because is, I'm, and I'm wondering, is there a, a thought that you might have around this idea of like, well, how do you sell maybe differently in these times as opposed to the standard way of doing it? I mean, I think you said it, Sangram, that, that you, you, you need a little bit more uh, empathy, even more empathy, even more attunement to the buyer. I don't know if it necessarily changes things in a fundamental way, because one of the things that I've tried to argue is that in, in this world where there is a balance between, in, uh, more or less of a balance between an information between the seller and the buyer, where yeah. the buyers have lots of information, where the buyers have lots of choices, where the buyers have lots of ways to talk back, you can't be uh, it's it's much harder to be coercive and aggressive, particularly in the long term. What you're better off doing is seeing selling as a way of of uh, as a way of of service. And I don't I don't mean only like customer service in the sense of or servicing like your automobile, but I mean just like yeah, helping helping people out. And so my hunch is that service becomes serving becomes even more important in this kind of era. Uh, but there are, but there are big, you know, there are big reality. There are big realities. Uh, you have customers with less, you have customers with less money. You have salespeople who have to make their nut. Uh, to me, yeah. this sort of goes up to the level of of the leadership. Like, I wouldn't want individual salespeople, individual sales reps, having to force make this decision on their own. What I would like is for them to hear from the people at the top of the organization, saying honestly and transparently, "Here's where we are. Here's what we need." We're going to do everything we can to take care of you. Here's the reality of our situation, and then that have that be as the have that as the as the guidance. It totally. I mean, we as our organization, we're about you know 200 people. We're now doing a weekly um, just Zoom conversation and open Q and A. It's like let's just talk about it because 
we're learning as everybody's learning. We, we None of us have gone through this before and know exactly what to do. So we're just learning. We're making some decisions that, that we just know what to do right now. And we don't have all the answers. That has been probably the most powerful thing that we have done. Uh, I feel right now, based on just anecdotally from the teams, is like we just think we don't have answers for some of these questions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, that one of the most important things for leaders, whether they're marketing leaders, sales leaders, or leaders of any kind, of, is, is just the willingness right now to say, I don't know. Uh, and also the, the willingness to be as transparent as, as transparent as possible. I do think that this moment will push, is pushing us toward ever greater transparency. Uh, and, and one of the things, and I think that's something that's worth leaning into rather than trying to resist. If only because in the absence, of, when, particularly when it comes to leadership within organizations, in the absence of transparency, it's not as if individuals say, oh, they're not being transparent. I'll stop thinking about this. Instead, if there's, if there's opacity, people, you know, if, if you draw the curtains, people say, God, I wonder what's going on behind those curtains. Oh, my God, what's happening? Uh, and my experience has been that what, what they imagine is happening behind those drawn curtains is always much worse, yeah. much more nefarious much more dastardly than what's really going on there. So I just, to me, it's like, you know, open the curtains as much yeah. as you possibly can because yeah. it's going to ease in. It's the right thing to do and it's going to ease in your ability to get stuff done. Yeah, I, I think you're so right. I think sometimes we try to try to make people feel like they're not adults. Like people are adults and they can get, and they, can, they probably know more and can feel it. And that's the worst thing when you don't tell them what it is when they actually know what's going on. So I'm with you. Future of work. I, I'm getting a lot of, uh, comments and question, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Is what do you think the future of work looks like as you see ourselves coming out of this? Yeah, I give you my general view, Sangram, and then and then I'll, I'll give you a more specific thing. You know, a lot of times at these big momentous junctures, whether it's nine eleven, whether it is uh, the financial crisis, there's a there's a view that this changes everything, and I find that's rarely the case. Uh, I tried to actually look back. I, I, I went back and did a little bit of research about 9-11 and some of the predictions of what would change. And what 9-11 did change in a fundamental way was a lot of our notions about national security. It changed yeah. what it was like to be at an airport, big time. Uh, yeah. It changed um, what it was like to enter buildings, big time. Uh, but it didn't have this other kind of broader cascading effect throughout other segments of society. So I'm a little bit skeptical of like this changes everything. I think what, what happens is more likely the sort of the universal case, and I think it's the case in this particular instant, is that moments like these accelerate and deepen trends that were already underway. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, there's one important one when it, come, when it comes to work uh, that I think that this could be, have a big, big effect on, and it's this. We have not, I think this, this moment offers a time for scrutiny, at least in, in two regards. One, we talk about the workplace. All right, and I want to emphasize the workplace, place as a physical location. I think what, what, what's happening now is that organizations are real in, and individuals are realizing that we're moving from workplaces to work platforms, from workplaces to work platform, that a physical location isn't the only thing necessary to allow people to get stuff done and do great things. It's a component of it, but it's really part of a larger platform. Um, and so I think we're, I, I do think that we're going to start companies are going to be start thinking about what's our work platform? What are the tools? What are the technologies? What are the connections that we can provide to our employees to allow them to get work done? The place is part of that. It's a subset of the platform. 
but it's not it's it's not as important as we as we think. And once we say, wait a second, the place serves the physical location serves a particular function. We can be much more strategic and saying, okay, what is that function? What do we want this place to actually accomplish? Now, this is true for businesses like yours, Sangram. Uh, it's yeah. not. It's less true for retail establishments, although there's some interesting implications there. It's less true for factories. Uh, obviously, it's less true for farms. But in terms of like the 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 kind of work that at this point, you know, 65% of the American workforce does, which is right. in an office, uh, this move from work places to work platforms. I think that's going to be a big deal. And I think that at one point, we'll look back on this 10 years from now and realize, remember when we all had to go home and we had to rely on Zoom? That was a piece of crap. You know, now we have, X, you know, X, Y, you know, X, Y, X, Y, and Z. I think that there's these Zoom meetings we're having are going to be seen in, in five years, 10 years as like the AOL dial-up internet connection looks, it looks, so at, great. Looks, at, looks at today. So workplaces to work platforms. The other thing that I think is going on in terms of the future of work is um, uh, once you get rid of that place and once you get rid of essentially people getting credit simply for showing up, all right, yeah. for, for being physically present, I think there is, as we talked about earlier, a little bit of an unmasking here of what do people do all day? Like, what do they actually do? We think about a job, all right? We think about a job, capital J job, um, as like, I'm an accountant, I'm a project manager. But I, that doesn't tell us that much. I like to look at this analogizing from uh, Ted Levitt from Harvard Business School yeah. 30, 40 years ago, where he said, you know, he talked about people buy products. People don't buy products or services. They buy jobs to be done. So the yeah. quintessential example is when I go to... Uh, if I go to the Ace Hardware down in Glover Park, Washington, D.C. to buy a drill, I don't really want a drill. What I really want is a hole in my wall. Okay? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, so, and so I think we have to think about, like, instead of a singular job, as a job is a collection of jobs to be done, of tasks to be done. And so they're sort of like an un – so we, they, they used to come in a bundle. Now they're unbundled. And, and I think this moment offers an opportunity, like, do we need that task to be done? Is that a valuable task to be done? Uh, who should be doing that task? Should that task be done uh, solo or should it be done collaboratively? Uh, should that be done synchronously? And I think this is a big issue, synchronously or asynchronously. And so uh, to, I, mean, I, I completely violated the principles of simplicity and rhyming and repetition for process and fluency, but that's my long-winded way of of saying, I think, again, accelerating and deepening trends that were already underway from workplaces to work platforms, and then also yeah. from a singular job to a set of jobs to be done. There are two, two chains of thoughts as you talk through that. I love the notion of work, workplaces to work platforms because we ourselves are looking at all the locations and saying, we actually are, weirdly, especially when you talk to the product team, they're like, we're super productive right now. Like, we got stuff going on. We have weekly sprints as opposed to two-week sprints or monthly sprints. So we are more productive than we have ever been, which is weird to think about and consider like, wait a minute, what? So we were not productive before? But it's, it's, it's a notion that we are in. And then there is others like we are way more, at least internally from our organization perspective, are way more aware of what's going on within the company than we have ever huh. been. That's interesting. Right? Because everybody's well, I mean, the, the reason is everybody's on Slack. Everybody is on Zoom. We're having this transparent, all-hands conversation, everything. So we, as an organization, 
everybody's sending more information about what they're doing because they just want to make sure everybody's aware. The idea in an office space for us was like, well, you know, how many times does it happen where, oh, I don't know what marketing is doing or sales is not success. Right now, there are groups. All right, here is a Slack group for marketing and sales working together. He's a cross-functional group. And so we're executing things at a faster pace than I've actually seen in a long time. At the same time, there is like, wait a minute, we, we have less traffic to, to hit. So people are actually coming in, getting work done. People are productive, moving faster. So there's part of me as a business owner, as a marketer, feels like this actually has made us better. And I didn't, yeah. Yeah, like I, I didn't realize that until like until literally last week. Like this actually is better. It has actually made us more effective. It has actually made us better at communication and learn what it is. It has made us aware of what our team members and what their lives look like better. And I'm like, wow, if, if we miss this in the next back to normal days, if we miss this, if we didn't learn anything from it, then we would have missed the whole, we have, we have just wasted a good crisis uh, in, in many ways, uh, if that makes sense. So I, I'm, so I love the idea when you said that, hey, you know, this is about not workplaces, but work platforms. I think we are seeing in real life right now that it is extremely powerful. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting to hear your. It's interesting to hear your experience about that. I, I mean, I think you raised a lot of issues. I, I do think that that I, I do think that there's still like in your company there'll still be room for places, but they're going to be much more intentional. I think that the architect, literally the architecture. I think the, the footprint is probably going to be smaller. The the architecture of them is going to be probably different, uh, and there's going to be much greater intention in its yeah. creation, rather than simply saying, oh, we're a company, we need an office. Uh, we're, I think we're going to be asking, what is the space for? What is the place for? What, is, what, what, what do we need people to be physically together for? So I don't, I don't see like the end of the office. Like, I, like, I think that, that physical places still matter. In, yeah. At some level, they matter more because they're irreplaceable by Slack, by by, by, by Zoom, but they have to be done with a, with a lot more intention. I, I, I do, it does seem from my vantage point right here, inevitable that there is going to be a smaller office footprint. For, like, I would not want to be in the commercial leasing business over the next yeah. four or five years. Seriously. I think yeah. that's going to that's, that's be a very, very, that's going to be a very tough, that's going to be a very, very tough business. You mentioned something else, though, Sangram, that I think we sometimes haven't noticed enough of in this great, you know, I like to think of this as the great unmasking that we're sort of ripping. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned uh, traffic. And one of the things we know from a, a big body of research on well-being is that commuting is one of the things that lowers our subjective well-being more than almost any other thing in our life. And, well, well, well. If, and, if, and if, there is, if there is a way to actually, if this ends up people sit, reducing people's commutes, it could have the ancillary effect of raising their well-being, assuming that people are able to you know, uh, uh, get sufficient social contact, social connectedness, physical activity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I think for me right now is like, I want to make sure that I'm working out enough so that I, I don't get to be, because that's the other part of it is like, you know, the, the, I feel like I'm also working harder than I've ever worked in the last four or five weeks than yeah. in my entire, like starting terminus earlier or even prior to that. And that just because the work day with kids at home and all these things have just changed your day schedule and has been like, it feels like you're always on in many ways. 
you, you mentioned about commuting and there's a couple of things uh, and people are loving the idea of unmasking. So I, I think that is definitely hitting the nerve. When, I, I want to go back to your, the very first book that I read. I don't know if that was the was, was Drive, your first book. No, I, I wrote a book uh, 20 years ago called Free Agent Nation. Okay. About, about the rise of people working for themselves. Okay. Well, it might actually be coming, doing a big comeback right now because I think a lot of, lot of people are working, uh, working from home and doing side hustles and side gigs. I mean, this is, this is like crazy. Like, for, for example, just for, for people to get to know, I've been doing a daily podcast for about two years, a couple of months. A lot of people are, are, are part of it. And I've always outsourced it to a, an agency called Sweet Fish because I, re- because I noted that it is never going to be our number one thing that we do as a business. So I don't want to do anything internally as an organization that is right. not core to our business. Right. I always want to outsource because if right now, if it wasn't for outsource, it's cheaper, it's faster. They know what they're doing. I don't have to train. You don't have to worry about the, the people moving in and out. They handle all of that. So if I had three people or two people inside, it, it would have been the program would not have ever survived uh, for two years. So knowing those two, two balances. So I'm interested to hear Drive. The book you wrote about almost 10 years ago, um, I still love it. I still go back to it over a period of time and, and just take a look at because I, I would actually make a lot of, I'm, I'm bad at this, but I would actually make a lot of like handwritten notes. Yeah, that's and great. That, that helps me to come back to certain things. And you mentioned in there, and I'm curious, around this intrinsic motivation that people have to do the right thing, the best thing, and to keep going. You talk about autonomy and all those things. And you talked about the limited efficacy of carrot and stick um, kind of mindset. Could you share in today's environment right now is drive, the internal intrinsic drive, how much of that is needed for you? Because when you're in work environment, it's a little bit different versus you're sitting at home and you almost can be hiding from a lot of these things happening around you. It's an interesting question because there are a couple, there are a couple things going on here. Uh, number one is that uh, right now, there is, intrinsic motivation uh, depends in part, it's complicated, but intrinsic motivation depends in part on a baseline level of security. Um, and that has been ripped from beneath a lot of people. Uh, we have unemployment numbers that, I mean, our unemployment numbers are, are, are spectacularly high and they're not telling the full story. So you have a huge amount of economic uncertainty out there. And so that makes it a little bit dicey when you're struggling for just are you going to survive you're less you're spend less time obviously thinking about about self-actualizing and i also think there's a there's a physical threat here too so people want to be have a sense of safety from that physical threat you know for the people who for whom those two things are not big problems yeah i i think that you're you're forced to be much more self-directed in this world than in other worlds I mean, it, it amazes me even to this day, even in white collar offices, how much uh, kind of not explicit, but informal, but, but implicit, uh, informal monitoring there is going on. It's like, oh, yeah. the boss is walking through the hallway. I better go on my computer to make sure that she knows I'm doing something. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's more of that compliant behavior and less of that self-directed behavior. Here, when nobody is watching, that's true. You have to be much more. You have to be much more self-directed. I think that human beings are naturally self-directed. I think that's our nature. However, the experience for a lot of people, many, 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 many people, of all these years in school and all these years in controlling work environments, 
has in some ways knocked the, the self-direction out of people. And so some people are going to be struggling to find their footing uh, in a world where they have to set their own hours. They have to decide what they're going to do. They have to decide more about how they're going to do it. Um, uh, so, yeah. so I, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, I know. And, and it, it's true. It's so true because I used to go to a boot camp at, five, at 6 a.m. every morning. And since the boot camp didn't happen, I've not been waking up that, uh, that early and going to it. And I'm not been working out. And I've been using the excuse. Well, I'm spending way more time with my family in the backyard in the evening. And I know I'm lying to myself, like straight up lying to myself right now. So I'm not self-directed when it comes to my personal health that I need to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are, see, it's just, it gets complicated, Sangha, because there are limits, there, you know, there are, um, there is, uh, you know, in a weird way, there is, I mean, there are paradoxes awash yeah. in all of this. So um, one of the things that I've discovered working at home for, uh, for t- for two decades, literally, is that there is that you can find autonomy in structure. That you can that structure in some ways can be liberating. So this idea that you're going to do things in a completely loosey goosey way is foolish. So you can find self direction through some. It doesn't mean lack of structure, lack of accountability. It it requires much greater uh, that that a, that a, a kind of a loose tight structure, a spine of structure can give you the freedom and flexibility of, of doing things. I would never have, if, if I said to myself, I'm only going to write when I feel like it. I'm only going to write when the mood strikes me. There's, I would not have produced anything in 20 years. <laughs> that is so good. That is so right. Autonomy gives. All right. So, so I'm going to give like two or three big ideas that I learned from this. And, and, and Daniel would love for you to share a challenge with everybody, like how they can be more productive in, in this environment as, as we look, or just a mindset that people can have or should have. So the big ideas for me that I learned from here, that actually Tom's and I'll include on the podcast, as well as a, a blog about this, this idea of unmasking, I think it just hit a chord with almost uh, a ton of people. So people are getting the idea of like, yeah, this is a unmasking. This, I, I didn't think about that word for this, but it literally physically feels like you're unmasking yourself or your family for with your work, uh, with your community. So I, I know yeah, more about this. And let me and let me see you and raise you on that. The, the unmasking is the unmasking is also it's not only personal, it's societal. I mean, I think that one of the things that this unmasking is that our our healthcare system is not nearly as resilient as we thought it should be. It's unmasking some deep divides in economic uh, inequality that we kind of sort of knew about, but then now are like staring us, you know, staring us, staring us in the face. Uh, the idea that if you work in a grocery store, your life is at risk. If you're a writer in your home office, you're going to be fine. I mean, that's mass. That's some pretty serious. That's some pretty serious uh, in, inequality. I think it's also unmasking this idea that. Um, uh, that there is a huge amount of power going to very, 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 very big entities. And mm-hmm. a lot of these, and, and those are, those are going to be fairly stable in this. The smaller entities are going to be kicked in the stomach and that can actually, and so, so there's, so there's personal unmasking, but there's also societal unmasking. And as you were talking about before, it's like, let's just have an open, honest conversation about that. Let's yes. not pretend that's not happening. Let's just have an open, on, yeah. honest conversation about what this tells us about who we are as a as a who we are as individuals, who we are as, as organizations, who we are as a nation, who we are as I mean, not to go too woo woo on you, but who we are as yeah. global citizens. 
true that and i think people expect that now more than ever before people expect you to be you otherwise they, they just know that there's something that that's real about you so i think if anybody is still wondering like well should i be vulnerable should i be transparent like you know this you have all the permission in the world to be that like just do that you're actually going to get more out of you and your team uh, doing that the other big idea that I, I that I really I went back and watched that uh, that two two minute video of yours around messaging that sticks and I I implore every single person listening is go back and look at your messaging from a sales perspective from a marketing perspective there are organizations you might need to change your messaging today to make sure that it's very empathetic you might need to uh, cut all of your email nurture programs that you might be doing today that talks about selling, 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 and, and change that to how you're serving, serving, serving. Whatever it is, you need to go back and really look at it because most organizations haven't done that. And imagine you as a customer re- getting an email about something that is completely unempathetic and what kind of brand. Nobody, you, nobody might say to you that's bad, but they're going to keep that in their head and they're going to tell that at a happy hour later on when things like that you didn't think about, you didn't care. So look at your messaging and create messaging that sticks. And then finally, this big idea, I feel like that is really the biggest idea I'm taking out of all of this, is this idea around work platforms. Um, as I said, like for us as an organization, there are a lot of pockets of our teams that are working at a much higher efficiency than they've ever been. And it doesn't mean that we should never come back together. I think maybe we need to, but like not necessarily daily. Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's quarterly, maybe as an organized company, right? But Right now, there is this efficiency that is at a completely different level. So don't waste um, this such a saying, right? Don't waste any crisis. It's like, do not waste this and just hide behind or be reactive. There's an opportunity for you uh, to be proactive. There's one more thing that I, I don't know if you could share as you share the challenge. I heard, and this is probably more relevant than every for, for me and hopefully others. And you made it funny um, in one of your videos around this mini breaks that people can take and you had this 2020 or something kind of rule around that. Could you share that as you share the challenge with everybody? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really, really simple one, Sangram. Um, one of the things that we know is, and, and again, it goes to a lot of the way what you were talking about before about uh, having to find your own way, having to make your own decisions on the job. Uh, um, one, of the, one of the things that we know is that breaks are more, from the research is that breaks are more important than we realize. We should be taking more breaks. We should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And that's sometimes hard in the day-to-day maw of getting stuff done, particularly in uh, working at home. As you said, one of the dirty little secrets is that sometimes people work more yes. when they're at home rather than rather than less. And so one of the simplest breaks you can take is what I call a 20-20-20 break. And it's very simple. Uh, it's particularly true when you're working at a computer. Uh, every 20 minutes, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. And even that very short break, um, can actually restore your mental acuity. It can restore a little bit of your your energy. Um, uh, one of the things, another kind of challenge that I would give to people is something that I've been trying to do is I will, on my phone, I will actually have alarms. I will have alarms two or three, uh, especially during the mm-hmm. afternoon, um, mm-hmm. where maybe one in the morning, maybe one in the morning, one in the afternoon, uh, where the alarm will go off and my job when that alarm goes off is to take a break, uh, not, not even take a break, take a walk. Um, and mm-hmm. even a short walk around my neighborhood, just because uh, there's, it's movement, it's detachment, it's nature, it's everything. It brings you together. I love that. Man, thank you so much, Daniel. It was fantastic spending yeah, time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, as always, you give me so much to think about. Um, and, and I know that we super appreciate it. So thank you so much. Okay, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.